fellow subscribers. It's episode 41, and uh, this is now the first episode, the first new episode you should be receiving on your new Grey Wolf dedicated uh, RSS feed. So you're now getting this on directly to all your devices, uh, sorry, devices. Fucking it. Can we start over again? Yeah, fuck it. I'm <laughs> gone. Uh, so, guys, we've listened to your complaints about the RSS feed, and the biggest thing that you guys told us was that you were not getting enough emails from Patreon. <laughs> so, you are going to get at least 10 emails about this show, 10 confirming that you downloaded it, 10 confirming that you listened to it. Just emails, emails, emails. Also, some offers for free Cialis, mm-hmm. reverse mortgages, uh, a lot of good stuff. Gorilla Mindset on PDF. No, but uh, we're, we're excited about the new RSS feed. We uh, hope you guys like it. And it's just, you know, a new way to bring Chapo to you, our listeners. Um, as I said, it's episode 41. I'm Will Meneker. Uh, joining me as always, Felix Biederman. Hello, everybody. And Matt Chrisman. Howdy, pilgrims. But uh, also joining us this week is our good friend, Alex, better known as Twitter user Loan Option. Alex, how you doing? Good. How are you? We're doing awesome. Did I pronounce your Twitter handle correctly? I have no clue. Uh, okay. Well, I'm trying to get on this new thing where I say people's names correctly and don't like you know mispronounce things because you know professionalism. But we'll see how that goes. What a shock! Mayo Meniker only cares about pronunciation when it's the German name. <laughs> I just discovered this. Um, well, we got a we got a, we got a, a lot to discuss on on today's show. But before we get into our main topic for the show, I think we should do just a little check in on Hillary Clinton Health Watch. She died. <laughs> I may not be Lana Del Rey, but I'm born to die. <laughs> Chelsea's favorite actor is Kevin Bacon, but I won't be a flatliner anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> uh, the, the, the status update is that she's still dying, folks. Yeah, Hillary is absolutely dying. Uh, Hillary is going to be William Henry Harrison, and she is going to be doing Democrat voice at the inauguration. Like She's still, still going to win because if you recut the polls, she's yes, up by 20 points absolutely. now. And uh, she's going to win. She's going to be at the inauguration. She's going to be doing... uh, She's going to be doing Democrat voice, of course. And she's going to be going... uh, I may not be a 4chan mod, (laughs) but I destroyed the Pepe Frog. And then (laughs) fucking Kerplat drops dead. Her head's going to blow up like the guy in Scanners on national television. (laughs) She's got uh, Siamese apoplexy and dropsy and pleurisy and 500 diseases that were thought extinct for 100 years. She's got feline herpes. <laughs> She's got shark AIDS. She's got everything. <laughs> we, uh, you know, we broke the news on our our, our previous yeah. show that Hillary Clinton is dying, but um, there there was some follow up. Oh my god, week. it was so funny. So well, we were we were recording right after the video of her being dragged, her corpse being dragged into the SUV <laughs> came out, and it was just. People basically all shitting their pants simultaneously online. But what ended up happening is you saw like a solid, over the course of the day, like four or five solid chunks of reaction, like evolving, like a fucking Pokemon. So the first response was when the first news came out oh, Hillary faints, nearly faints at 9 memorial. It was mostly, no, that's bullshit. 
who's saying that? Right wing trolls? And then the video came out and there was like five seconds of silence while they all screamed, you know, internally. And then they're all like, well, it's hot out. What? It's hot. She's 70 years old. What do you think? And then so you had guys like Peter Dow saying, I live in New York. It was 3000 degrees out. I that nearly was died. Honestly, my favorite thing in the world, because like it's information that nobody could confirm yeah. but Peter Dow, which right. is the best part of that lie. Because that's like a Baghdad Bob thing. Because, like, <laughs> there's 8 million people in New York. They all knew what temperature it was. Well, uh, I wouldn't call him Baghdad Bob, but Beirut Bob, uh, <laughs> Peter Dow, uh, did claim that he's out there breaking white boys' ankles. But at 80 degrees, it's too hot for him to even walk. Couldn't even stroll. But well, so, the, well, what's funny, so you had him, but then you had these people led, led by, like, that Shakespeare spoon woman. Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Saying people don't realize how difficult it is to be a woman and how, how heat can play with your mind, mind and make it hard for you to be outside. And this thread became like this list of people talking about how hard it is for them to go outside in the summer. And really, you're just thinking, you people should see the doctor. <laughs> yeah. People are saying things like, well, you know, when I go out in the summer, the sun is just like 5,000 knives stabbing you in the <laughs> eyes the whole day. That's a condition. You should have that looked folks, into. Folks, you heard it here first. Uh, most women are day-walking vampires. <laughs> <laughs> See, that was the yeah. The implication was you guys you guys don't realize that women are basically being burned by the sun subdermally at all times, and it takes a monumental strength of will to even go outside. Uh, we do have with us though our our guest today. He's kind of an expert at lighting women on fire on <laughs> their brain weaknesses, and William Henry Harrison. Uh, Alex, I think you have a unique perspective about the brain vapors that plague women as a Puritan. Yeah, um, it's probably a demon possessing her. Um, she basically deserves it after Benghazi. <laughs> How do we drive it out, though? Is there any way? Um, I think if she faints enough, it'll just get tired. Like, it's just, it's just at this point, it's just okay, sick of her. we're gonna have to try that. And so the next stage, after the initial, like, just ambient argument that her being a woman outdoors is painful and noticing that she fell down and had to be dragged into a car is sexist, then the revelation was, oh, she had pneumonia. And then all of a sudden it snapped instantly into, well, of course she had pneumonia. Now, this is the, uh, Alex, just this is the second time uh, we have confirmed on this show Twitter user Strong Pisses thesis that women are demons. <laughs> I may not be... Black Philip, but I am the goat. <laughs> I don't know if I buy the pneumonia thing. I'm, I'm still sticking with the um, it's normal to faint when it's 72 degrees out. I'm sticking that to was, my guns I, on that one. Everyone does do you, that. What do you think? What do you think the offices of Media Matters were like that day? Just guys were throwing themselves down the stairs, being like, this is normal. It was this like is... that scene in Apollo 13 where like some guys are napping and Ed Harris kicks him. He's like, get up, get up. There are men's lives at stake. Which disaster NASA has ever experienced. With all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. What was so funny is, is that so after the, after the pneumonia diagnosis, they're all like, see, we told you. And then when it came out that there were apparently people sick at the Clinton HQ, that was like checkmate. But that means she was out in public saying hello to people. There's pictures of her with touching kids. kids. <laughs> it's like that means that she was basically typhoid Mary of New York City on that day. Well, well okay, okay. Now you see the difference in the candidates. Uh, 
Donald Trump and Jill Stein believe that this, that uh, vaccines cause autism and cause you to vote for Donald Trump or Jill Stein. But <laughs> Hillary is so opposed to that, she's even bypassing the needle procedure of vaccines. She's actually going out there and germinating these kids. <laughs> That's called uh, retail politics. My name is Peter Dow. And you know, I got to say, I've seesawed on this thing over the last like three months or something but now I'm coming back around to thinking that Trump actually could win this election and I think Felix you said it exactly right that coming out of the DNC Hillary Clinton's two highest profile you know hits in the campaign trail were calling out Pepe the Frog and uh, collapsing in front of uh, everyone on national television I, I love the very North Korean reaction, though, from the Hillary surrogates, because when they found out that she had pneumonia, which they found it out at the same time we all did, because no one fucking tells them anything, uh, they're like, well, this proves she's the strongest woman in the world. <laughs> and then people were trying, even though they were simultaneously saying, well, look, there's all these people at the HQ with pneumonia, and then also that it isn't contagious, because that means that she isn't going around irresponsibly exposing uh -huh. other people. So... It's yeah, it's incredibly North Korean. It's it's just pretzel logic. It doesn't make any sense. The best Never part of that is that if it's not contagious, that means it's probably some immune disorder, like AIDS. Feline immunodeficiency virus. Yeah, the non the non contagious pneumonia means she has like AIDS or something. That's no, 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 no. That's gonna be great. Hillary has grid. Hillary has what Jim Henson had. I can't wait for next week when like Peter Dow, Tom Watson, Ian Milheiser, Milhouse—they're all like I have AIDS. Like it's normal. Like <laughs> once you turn once you turn forty-five, you get AIDS. Uh, you know what? Hey, 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 if you don't have AIDS, you don't really understand the LBGT community. That's right. Yeah, it's like a roundabout uh, way of making them ironic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Dow irony, bro. Yeah, would have seen it coming. Um, and oh yeah, Peter Dow N one mixtape coming out soon. I can't wait for that. <laughs> All Yo, time cross, summer hooping. I can't. I just crossed you over for my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I think that's enough for uh, Hillary Clinton uh, Health Watch uh, this week. Uh, life tuned for Life Watch. But uh, yeah, we have a whole a whole topic to get into, and I don't want to give it uh, short shrift at all. So, segueing into the the main topic of the show for this week is another movie. We're doing another movie this week with uh, Alex, and the movie is Crash. Crash is um, David Cronenberg's 1996 adaptation of J.G. Ballard's cult novel, starring James Spader, Holly Hunter, and Elias Coteus. Elias is quit. No, no, Elias Coteus. Um, this was, you know, it, it's it's the cult novel about how people uh, who get uh, sexual satisfaction from car crashes. That's the movie we watched for this week's show, right? Uh, no, Will. We watched the Academy Award-winning tale of why racism is bad, Crash. Yeah. Oh, starring gosh. everyone in Hollywood. Our, if you guys are listening to this episode, you we know we've done the market research. A lot of our listeners are in that sweet spot, 18 to 24-year-old demographic. So... A lot of you don't know what racism is firsthand because racism ended in 2004. Yes, I'm sorry. I, this is in jest. We're, this is Paul Haggis's Crash, the Oscar-winning film from 2004 that, um, I don't know, it's about 
how in America we're all just sort of bottled up inside in our own identities and prejudices, and that cuts us off from one another. But if we were just able to like just sort of switch perspective and come out of ourselves a little bit, we would realize that all these prejudices we harbor are wrong. And that, for instance, if you see a cop and he molests you on one day, there's a very good chance he may save your life the next day. So really, who's the real racist? I just want to say, you know, it, it, it's a movie about, you know, racism and prejudice. And, you know, people will say, oh, here are four white guys come to tell you about racism and break it down and critique this movie. What right do they have? And I'll say, well, that, that's true, but this movie was written, produced, and pitched to an audience of overwhelmingly white people. So I feel we are actually exactly the right. And that. awarded Academy Award by the whitest group of people in the history of the world, the Motion Picture Association of America. Yeah, they might as well, the 2004 Academy Awards, uh, it might as well have been in the eagle's nest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a, yeah, Crash. Oh man, what what a movie this is! Uh, is this the worst movie to ever win Best Picture? Would you say? Uh, I mean, it's got some competition. Certainly, just in the twenty first century, uh, like shit, like the artist in Chicago. But the thing about those is they're just really mediocre, and you wouldn't even be bothered by them if having that little Oscar emblem next to them on the poster wasn't so irritating. Uh, but this movie is like genuinely vile and offensive in a way that they aren't. So I think it might be the winner. I mean, a lot of people forget uh, what happened in the 90s because of 9-11, but Liar Liar did win Best Picture. <laughs> but this may be worse. This is worse than Liar Liar. This Liar Liar did more to confront race relations in America in a realistic way than Crash did. Yeah, th th this is what Crash is. This is a movie that's like, let's get real, folks. Let's get real about racism and, and prejudice in America. And because the real fact of it, and this is what was so baffling about everybody breaking their arm, patting themselves on the back for having watched it and been so enlightened by it, is the message is basically well, everybody's racist, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah. everyone's a racist, regardless of their race, so racism is just sort of an interpersonal problem we all have to now, deal yeah, with. Yeah, this, this movie was like a $50 million version of the t-shirt that you get at Spencer's Gifts. I'm not a racist, I hate everybody equally! <laughs> Now, you could say that this is the sort of typical uh, white liberal guilt movie that uh, does so well around award seasons that are about, you know, issues and things like that. But I would say it's a liberal guilt movie from, but in a surprising way. It's a liberal guilt movie because what the movie's really about is that liberals feel guilty that all the racist shit they believe might actually be true. Yes. that That's kind of the message mm -hmm. of this yeah. movie. Should we break down the characters in this movie? Well, I, I was keeping a running tally... Uh, as I was watching this movie, of all the uh, racial stereotypes, and I was just sort of like making note of them as they cropped up. But the first thing I want to talk about is that the opening line of this movie is, uh, nobody touches you in L.A. <laughs> That's true. No one in L.A. has ever fucked. They're all balso. And it's Don Cheadle is like, you know, talking to himself after he's gotten a car accident. He was rear-ended by a, the first racial stereotype of the movie, a, a Korean woman who's a bad driver. And he says, in other cities like New York, you walk places and people brush up against you, and it's real. But in LA, everyone's cut off from each other, and they crash their cars into one another because they're just like desperate for a connection. It's deep stuff. 
Yeah. Which is, this is why New York City is not a racist city is because, you know, someone from a different cultural or racial background than you may um, molest you on the subway. You know, that that's what I say, actually, on the subway when I'm manspreading and I'm telling women to smile and I don't have women on my timeline and women notice. I'm like, sometimes I think that I manspread just because no one in the city touches each other more. <laughs> And I tell women to smile because no one smiles anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, the first the first stereotype that we see is the uh, the Korean woman who's a bad driver, and like I said, it, it opens with Don Cheadle is an uh, LAPD cop, and he's been called to the scene of a, a homicide, and then like the, but then the movie jumps back in time, jumps back like a, a day earlier, and it opens with the there's the second racial stereotype of the movie is a fat, drunk, racist Irish guy who gets into an altercation with what uh, he believes are, you know, uh, people who did 9-11 when they're trying to buy a gun. Yeah. um, This was a key scene in the movie. Uh, There are our hero. I think he's the hero of the movie, right? The racist, fat, drunk gun shop owner. He represents the viewer of the movie. He's the hero. He is like a Persian man is trying to buy a gun. This guy's like, hey, 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 Osama, I got your freaking gun right here. Hey, who, hey. And then the guy's, like, really hot daughter is there with him. Yes. His daughter was very hot. And they do the clump. He does the clumsiest sexual dialogue ever where she's like, I just want bullets. And he goes, it depends. Uh, yeah. Depends if the bullets can fit your freaking hole. <laughs> I mean, you cunt. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, like, basically, what the film does is it's this sort of it's an ensemble cast, and it's going to take you through the lives of these you know disparate, seemingly unconnected people on a, on a couple days in Los Angeles, two days in the Valley, if you will. And much better movie than this, by the way. <laughs> Danny Aiello's finest performance. And the movie's going to take you from people from different backgrounds as they sort of connect, crash into each other, if you will, and 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 challenge, you know, their uh, preconceived notions about how other people are and live. And um, the next scene is uh, Lud- the, the rapper Ludacris, Chris Ludacris Bridges, and Lorenz Tate are coming out of a nice uh, restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard. And this is the third uh, racial stereotype we encounter, and that is sort of uh, fake woke black guys. Like Ludacris is this like spits all this like half-assed revolutionary jive, but um, actually they are thugs and they don't tip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your stereotypes are true, people. <laughs> hey, waitresses, don't don't go to that table of black people. You and like this is the first. They're example, right about you're right about them. This is the first example of how the movie's like it's it's flipping your perspective. It's it's surprising you because it it starts with the scene, and Ludacris is complaining that like oh we took us an hour and a half to like you know the waitress didn't even give us coffee. Uh, all the white people in there, you know, like they were getting good service, and you know because we're black, we're getting shit on. Blah blah blah. Racism. And then the movie's like, hey, check this out. They're like, Ludacris is like, they just think we look like criminals or whatever. And then the movie is like, aha, I know what you're thinking. What if they actually were, are criminals? <laughs> this is a great scene. It really like changed my perspective on things because before this, I was sort of on the fence about black people. And then I learned <laughs> that they don't tip. And I'm like, wow, these guys are great. <laughs> They're finally willing to stand up to waitstaff. <laughs> I mean, Alex, what have you always said? What are the easiest jobs in America? 
Marine, a uh, teacher, special ed teacher specifically, a firefighter. <laughs> nurse. And then nurse, yeah. Single nurses mom. Should be, n- nurses should make minimum wage. <laughs> <laughs> they do nothing. <laughs> so, uh, Ludacris and Lorenz Tate uh, complain about how they're being profiled and then carjack uh, Brendan Fraser and Sandra Bullock. Yeah, and then they uh, then we go to their house where Senator Bullock screams at Brendan Fraser for ten minutes about why he didn't racially profile enough, and why she was an idiot for like suppressing her racism. Yeah, like they were going to be able to do anything. That's the thing she said. Like, yeah. I should have turned around, but it's like you had to get your car. The <laughs> yeah. car is in one position. You have to go to the car to get in it. Well, How can you turn around? That's like they had to flank. Ludicrous, like they had to do a classic flanking maneuver. It was like going around the Maginot line. But this is really the scene where I realized something. It's like, oh, okay, Paul Haggis thinks he's gonna show how really everybody's racist, you know. But what the problem is is that he has populated his film that's supposed to expose our collective problem with race exclusively with massive gaping assholes. <laughs> Every character in this movie, except Michael Pena, is a complete piece of shit. That's absolutely true. Yeah, like let, let's talk about let's talk about the uh, Persian guy. Awful. Okay, so what an asshole. Asshole. Wait, yeah. before we get back to the, the Persian guy, I just want to tick off on my list here. Uh, when Sandra Bullock gets home, uh, Sandra Bullock and Brendan Fraser get home, I ticked off four and five on the racial stereotype list. We have Michael Pena as a cholo who wears a wife beater and has lots of spider tattoos. But um, he's actually a good guy, though. Yeah, he's, he's actually a like, reverse on he's that. He's the one decent character yeah. in the movie. Yeah. I just want to Sandra- point out that he's a locksmith that exclusively works between the hours of like 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Like every time you see him, it's like the middle of the night. <laughs> uh, it's it's called Sleepy's Locks Holmes. <laughs> That's, That's normal. He's gonna be in the sequel to Suicide Squad. He he's gonna be like after the fire guy dies, they're gonna be like, this is our new. This Mexican is his cousin. Guy. This is you Lock can do Man. any lock, yo, <laughs> any lock. And then I'm sorry, uh, Sandra Bullock uh, fits off number five on our stereotype list. I'm gonna censor myself and call her a very country white lady, but I don't mean that she's from a rural area. But basically, uh, she's a, a bitch who hates the help. Yeah, it was sort of implied in this movie that Brendan Fraser should become a man who goes his own way and start <laughs> boiling chicken, living alone, parking his motorcycle in his living room, <laughs> because this is what women act like. Like they, they want you to be racist in a different way because you stole, they stole your car that you paid for with your money that you are going to have to buy gas for when she divorces you and you face the tyranny of family court. Uh, and then no, so Brendan Fraser plays the Los Angeles district attorney. Yeah, and he now he's in. Uh, he has an image problem because he's he just got carjacked by two black guys, and and like you know he's thinking, oh, I got an election coming up. This is gonna look bad for me in the black community. So he immediately starts uh, bullshitting with his staff about. He's like, I need to get on TV, uh, being shown giving a medal to a black guy. How about that uh, firefighter who saved those kids last month? And the aide was like, um, actually, um, he's an Iraqi. Um, and he was like, what? He looked black, and then I swear to God, in in the in the screenplay for this movie, his aide makes a point of pointing out that the Iraqi firefighter's name is Saddam. So that's stereotype number six: mm-hmm. an Iraqi named Saddam, uh, who looks black, the- which is a really <laughs> common thing. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, yeah, sir. He also is wearing a straw hat with buck teeth. <laughs> like, it's just every stereotype. Yeah. 
Uh, you, think, you think it's oatmeal too spicy also? The, the Persian shopkeeper and his hot daughter, okay? Here's what I like about this character. They sort of set it up like he, this is the other uh, stereotype, the stingy Arab shopkeeper. And like they're playing with your perspective on this because you're like, oh, here's the, here, you know, I, I know this type. But then about a half an hour into the movie, it reveals that he's actually Persian. And this is where the movie really fucks with you. It's like, you know, it's flipping all these prejudices you have on your head and being like some shopkeepers are Persian too. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, I have something this like, I figured something out about this character. I didn't figure this out when I saw this movie for the first time when I was 14. This, the Persian shop owner was definitely in Savak. <laughs> like, absolutely, because later in the movie, when he thinks he is getting charged, like, $20 more than he should for a door, he's like, oh, I have to kill this man. <laughs> like, that's definitely a guy who is pulling fingernails on behest of the shop. Like, that's he's, why he's in America. Yeah, that's he's in he America. Was... He was escaping war crimes. And the movie, the real postscript to the movie is a guy from Kud's Force just fucking <laughs> garroting him. <laughs> I would like that because that guy is probably the Awful. biggest douche in the entire movie. The Worst fucking character. Okay, just c continuing down, uh, the, the, we continue to meet more characters and racial stereotypes. We meet Matt Dillon, who's a sadistic, racist cop, but he has a father who has trouble peeing, so you're supposed to feel bad for him. And then he runs into, uh, I think, seven on my list of uh, racial stereotypes. The loud type of sister who uh, is a DMV employee, but she's not. She's an HMO employee, but it's just sort of the uh, the black woman who sits behind a desk or phone and frustrates your um, busy schedule. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Matt Dillon, he has a problem. His father cannot go to the bathroom without sighing, which like no father in history has ever done that. So we know this is a problem. Uh, but so he like after just saying every racist thing he could think of to her he's like look I'm gonna appeal to you heart to heart and he talks about his dad and his dad was not racist his dad had a janitorial company and lost everything he had because the city decided to only hire black janitors <laughs> which I don't think happened ever in anywhere somehow like his entire business was centered around like I don't like cleaning up City Hall. I don't get it. But anyway, like that. Yeah, because you're not allowed to go anywhere else. Yeah. You can't clean anywhere else if you have a city contract. If you lose it, you have to yeah. end your contract. Yeah, you, you, you have to live under the bridge and live with your son who is a rapist cop. <laughs> and he's like, he has to like just mutter racial slurs under your breath while you like try to piss. Alex, I think you you said the funniest, like the thing that made me decide we needed to do this episode. What you said about this character? Yeah, that it's um, it's okay to be racist if your dad has a urinary tract infection. <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's the central message uh, of this movie that I remembered because I watched it when I was fourteen, which was nine years ago, and this was like this was the point where I realized that adults are all retarded. <laughs> because like I was 14 and I figured out how to torrent movies or whatever so I was like oh I remember my parents talking about this really good movie like Crash um, and it won all the Oscars and everything so I'm gonna watch a grown up movie and be sophisticated and I watched it and I was like this fucking sucks this is horrible and that, that's when I realized like you know society is just messed up and like everyone else is crazy except me 
<laughs> yeah, uh, that's, and that that's ever since then I have had uh, a really fucked up outlook on life. <laughs> yeah, Alex. Alex is, you know, we've known each other before. I moved to Brooklyn to work for Thought Catalog and Buzzfeed and Everyday Feminist at feministing at the same time. Before I hit it big, Alex like once got me in a DM and he told me. Uh, I root for the bad guys in movies. Like, this is the kind of guy that you're talking to right now. And it's because of this movie. Uh, the bad guy in this movie, by the way, is Paul Haggis. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, th- then we get to uh, the, the, the the scene that, you know, was was the, one of the most, the ha- most harrowing scene in this movie, where uh, Terrence Howard and uh, Thady Newton are sort of like the the you know, upper class kind of bougie black couple. And, I just want to stop you, you know, right there. The most harrowing scene is when the racist dad can't piss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like... Let's just get that, that straight. When he's sitting on the toilet and, like, the door's open because he doesn't shut the door when he's, like, pissing and when he's sitting down pissing and his son's just walking around and, like, listening to him piss and stuff. That's the most harrowing scene. Okay, the second most towering scene, <laughs> it, it ha- takes place when Matt Dillon is out on patrol, you know, looking for some people to be racist to. Oh, or Matt Dillon's partner is played by Ryan Philippe, who's sort of the, the young, fresh-eyed, you know, do-gooder cop who, like, you know, ha- hasn't had his liberal illusions beaten out of him yet. Uh, he still naively thinks that uh, racism is, is bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like... He's a millennial like, piece of shit. Yeah, he's a bitch. Like the scene where um, uh, the racist guy, racist cop, confronts him, and he's like, "You'll you'll learn how it is when you're out there in a few years. Like sometimes you have to like sexually assault somebody for no reason." Yeah, what happens is Matt Dillon catches a a glimpse of you know Terrence Howard's SUV. Like I don't know, fails to signal, and uh, he catches a glimpse of uh, Thady Newton. Um, Given some some road head to her husband on on a drive home from probably a fancy restaurant or something like that, and you know this is like red to a bull. He's like I I, I cannot abide this happening on my watch. Yeah, you he's, know, he's on some Mark Furman. Yeah, shit. he's on some Mark Furman shit because he's like my dad, an honest white man, can't even get piss out of his dick without squeezing my arm for four hours straight, <laughs> and this fucking black guy is coming just happily while he drives has the world gone mad not in my America <laughs> so uh, he pulls him over and uh, you know like and then you know Terrence Howard is like you know he, he he's like oh god I please don't kill me please don't kill me but of course his you know wife decides to mouth off and give Matt Dillon an opportunity to frisk her in an incredibly inappropriate way in front of him it's like it's very like bad lieutenant or or straw dogs. The scene is kind of about like Terrence Howard is revealed to his wife as as a, a weakling. He's yeah. a cuck. He yeah, just he lets another man just like assault his wife basically and doesn't say shit. That's how transgressive this movie is. It's a black guy being cucked by a white guy. Ooh, very open minded. Holy shit. Well, this stereotype blown. This movie takes your stereotypes and prejudices and they flip them on. They, it just like they show you. You're a stereotype or a prejudice, only to subvert them later. So they're like that stingy Arab shopkeeper. He's actually Persian. Somewhere out there, there's like a, a black nationalist alt right where they just get mad about being cucked by white guys. <laughs> <laughs> and it was solely inspired by this movie. 
Isn't that Hotep? Isn't like this movie is where oh, Hotep yeah. came from? But dude, Ludacris is kind of a Hotep. Yeah, he's a little bit. Ludacris is very Hotepy, and I want to talk about the scenes, the dialogue between Lorenz Tate and Ludacris when they're like fleeing in, in, in the stolen car, and Ludacris is being like, trying to tell him that rap music is like oppressing black people or something. The FBI it, it has too many N-words in it. So that it was no longer revolutionary. Yeah, all Ludacris's dialogue was like written by Steven Crowder. Like this is what Steven <laughs> yeah, Crowder yeah. thinks black people just talk about all the time. Um, then the other guy starts talking about how actually country music is as good or better than rap music, which is something that all black people talk about all the time. <laughs> yeah. This is, like, the only thing black... That's how you know that Terrence Howard and his wife, like, that they were outside of the rest of black society, because every other black person just, like, there's one friend who thinks that they invented rap music to oppress black people, and then one friend who's like, actually, it's as good as country, and those are the only things that black people talk about. I just want to talk about, in that scene, they're like, uh, the, you know, this very authentic dialogue of how two black people uh, converse with each other. Um, while they're uh, yelling and, and jiving with one another, uh, they run over a Korean man with their car. Can we talk about their, the realistic dialogue for a second? Because you know what that dialogue reminded me of? It reminded me of when there's, like, a shitty uh, pile-on of people on Twitter, and, like, they're trying to roast some guy's shoe or something, and it's all Hey, yo, fam. Shoes yeah. look like fam, yo. Shoes <laughs> look like Ronald McDonald AF, though. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. They got those people to write all of Ludacris's lines in this movie. But back to the Chinese guy. Uh, a Korean, Korean guy. Korean guy. See, we're being. Wow, right now. he's Korean. He's yeah, Korean. he's Korean. Shit. That's another stereotype that uh, Korean men constantly get hit by cars. <laughs> <laughs> they just can't stop doing it. They love it. Oh man. Um, so yeah, I mean, well, I mean, this is what's so fucked. Up. I mean, like in, in trying to recap this movie, it's so hard because there's really no plot. No, it's, it's just like it introduces a bunch of people. And then just, like, some shit happens to them, but, like, nothing is really resolved yeah, in Yeah, and the way. weird thing is that this is a movie that's generally bunched into that weird subgenre that emerged around this time, uh, at the turn of the millennium of, of divergent plots of people coming together. But they really don't. They, like, it's basically, like, they're, Matt Dillon does the molestation, and then later on he saves Sandy Newton from a car crash. Oh, see, racists can save lives, too. But, like, the guy thinks that Michael Pena fucked up his door and then tries to kill him. It's like, they're just, it's like two scenes, basically. They set up a relationship and then they go back to it. And that's it. And then none of the other ones come together at all. Like, it's very derivative of sort of, like, these ensemble L.A. movies, like uh, Robert Altman's Shortcuts or Magnolia or something like that. And even it has that hokey thing at the end where it snows on Christmas in L.A. Yeah. Which is like a definite ripoff of, there's a, of the earthquake at the end of Shortcuts and the frogs in Magnolia. And let's was not that snow? the greatest hold on a minute, the greatest ensemble L.A. film ever made Volcano. Yeah. <laughs> which also ends with a giant snowstorm of ash which, and then that Volcano is better than Crash in a million ways, and one of them is it's a better movie about racism. It's because true. There's a subplot in Volcano about this racist cop and this gangbanger who he's trying to arrest right when the volcano goes off, and then they have to like let him go so they can all fight the volcano together. And at the end of the movie, when the volcano has been stopped, and there's a huge plume of this 
this ash in the air, and it's landing on everyone. This little kid who's in Tommy Lee Jones's arms because he just saved his life looks around because everybody's covered in the ash, and he goes, "They're the same. Everyone looks the same." Wow. Yeah, and I, that's, I, that's I, a better statement about racism. I mean, that's like people get, crash. People get got mad at me at the office when I was like, "We should all put on blackface to show that we're all the same." <laughs> but like, that's the same thing. I, there is. I have a movie. I have a work that this movie reminded me of though that isn't Volcano or anything else or any of these classic LA movies you know what it reminded me of? Dragon Ball Z <laughs> and you know why it reminded me of Dragon Ball Z? Because in Dragon Ball Z uh, there would be 500 episodes in a row where guys are just balling their fists and getting really mad before they have one episode where they fight each other and it was that was like this movie for racism Everyone is just like they're stewing around getting mad. They're like working themselves to get up to get racist for like about, I'd say, 90% of the movie. And then it culminates in these little vignettes where they act racist to each other, but it's all very anticlimactic, like Dragon Ball Z. This is the Dragon Ball Z of racism. <laughs> to me, it felt more like Seinfeld, but like <laughs> it, it felt like if Matt Stone and Trey Parker guest wrote an episode of Seinfeld and it was it's very like, heavy and Kramer but it was yeah. racist Kramer like his famous n-word bit from his stand-up racist Kramer is every character yeah yeah like I said I was, I was trying to think how to recap this movie like and I'm trying to think about the structure of it and it's just it's very odd and like I said the first half of the movie I was ticking off my list of all the uh, sort of racial stereotypes that they introduce and then at this kind of turning point they they turn it around and they're gonna like show you how it's different. I think the real message of the movie is that like stereotypes are true, but just not in the way that you think they are. You know? And the turning point of the movie is, as Matt said, the scene where Matt Dillon saves Tady Newton from a burning car. And yeah. that okay, let's talk about that scene actually. A lot going it's on. Really fucked up. They shoot that scene. Like, okay, the, the car is flipped over, um, there's gas everywhere, there's it's gonna go, it's gonna ignite at any moment. Matt Dillon is the first officer on scene. Uh, he's like, you know, trying to crawl in the window of the SUV going, ma'am, ma'am, can you hear me? Are you okay? Ma'am, we have to get you out of the car. And then like the, he gets, he's basically like on top of her and she realizes the guy who not 24 hours ago like felt her ass and minge in front of her husband. And she starts screaming. She's like, no, don't touch me. Get away from me. Get away from me. No. And then like Matt Dillon is just like, lady, Stop freaking out. You're being crazy right now. You're going to die. Yeah, she's on the freaking okay. rag. <laughs> Paul, Paul Haggis, he shoots this scene. And like when, when Thady Newton finally sort of submits in a way, he shoots this scene like they're having sex. It's in a close-up of both of their faces. And you see her face on top of his. And they're sort of like... <clears throat> So, like that awkward moment when you're trying to like stay in you know <laughs> <laughs> and it's like this, this huge build up and then release of like the mushroom cloud of gasoline flames and the car finally and the slow up. motion as he leads her out of the car and the swelling opera music there's opera music in the background the whole scene is very the orgasmic whole, the, like what the point of that is ba it basically it's like every one of those right wing Facebook memes where it's like oh you don't like the cops well good luck when your car gets stolen or something it's like Oh, you think cops shouldn't be racist and uh, sexual assault you? Well, then who's going to pull you out of that burning yeah, car? Like, oh, yeah, sorry, Black Lives Matter. Uh, 
getting mad because the cop molested your wife? Well, what are you going to yeah. do when you need him? This okay. is like this is like when Bill Clinton was like, you know where Black Lives Matter? Africa. Yeah. It was like the rapist cop is like, you know where Black Lives Matter? Not when I'm sexually assaulting them, but when they're about to be exploded. That's when it counts. The great thing about that scene is that the only thing the guy does is like unbuckle her seatbelt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like he anyone she could have just unbuckled. Either. Anyone could have done it. It was like, even, I, even like bitch ass, uh, liberal ass Ryan Philippe could yeah, have done that. But I think that was implied. It was like, he's the only one with the courage to go into the car and unbuckle the seatbelt because he's racist. Like, racism has given him courage. No, Ryan Philippe, it, the, the movie strongly implies that Ryan Philippe's character would not have been a good enough cop to save that woman's life because of his non-racism. Yeah, he's not racist. He's like, Ryan Felipe is like, what, wait, were you saying that black people can't survive a gasoline explosion? <laughs> She's fine. This is the bigotry, uh, soft bigotry of low expectations. Okay. And then Matt Dillon is like, no, you can't. You're too weak. <laughs> yeah, he's speaking Let over a woman of color. <laughs> All throughout that scene, though, like I was just laughing because I was reimagining it as if like he goes in the car and then he just does it again. He just starts feeling her up again, <laughs> and, and they both blow up because he just he just can't stop. <laughs> Maybe that's problematic. I, I apologize. That's better. extremely problematic, Alex. <laughs> I know, I, know I said at, at the beginning that this had potential to be our most problematic show ever, but that wasn't a challenge. That yeah, I know. <laughs> wow. Some guys just bring their A-game every fucking time. But, uh, but this movie is problematic AF, though. Just Holy like, shit. Okay, here's the thing. Think about like the, the, way, like, the, the way it's set up at the beginning of the movie, like who you think that your sympathies are going to lie with versus where it ends up. And like, like, like it's just the opposite of... of the normal yeah, kind of like that's good uh, liberal art. message movie. That's you know? good art. Yeah. It challenges you. <laughs> because, Ryan, okay, let's talk about Ryan Philippe's character. He's set up as the good cop who is disgusted by seeing his partner sexually assault a woman and his just general uh, violence and corruption, I'm assuming. Um, by the end of the movie, he straight up kills Lorenz Tate for no reason. He racially profiles him and then kills him. Yeah, that was like, you know, you know, my favorite Facebook memes are the ones where it's like somebody with tattoos and it's like, people judge me because of my tattoos, but I actually like, I uh, have adopted 20 kids with terminal cancer <laughs> and I, uh, I'm like, I do Toys for Tots and I'm always donating money to bullying. That's like, this is the same thing because it's like people judge me because I'm a racist uh, sexual predator, but I actually say black lives... And you know what? The biggest hypocrites are the people who say they're not racist but end up shooting black people to death for no reason. <laughs> and you're like, holy shit, I never thought about that, dude. You're so right. You're so, I'm never going to judge somebody's racism by their own exterior racism anymore. Do you remember, do you remember what kicks off the altercation? He, uh, so they, he's, he's picked him up hitchhiking, right? Like he picked up Lawrence Tate hitchhiking. He was looking for rough trade. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it has been set up that Lawrence Tate has like a little Satan like Anthony, St. Christopher. Christopher, like figurine that he carries around with him. And he saw, I think he sees Matt, uh, Ryan Felipe's one and he like laughs and Philippe for some insane reason thinks he's laughing no, at him. Why are you laughing? It's, it's country music. Oh, right. Lorenz Tate laughs music. at Ryan Philippe's country yeah. music. It's like, fuck you, get out of my car, which is like, dude, <laughs> why, are, I mean, Felipe's got some issues. I mean, the fact that he's 5'2", probably something <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. why he's so touchy. So then he's like, get out of my car. And then, 
he reaches into his pocket to get the St. Christopher thing, and he goes, "Do not put your take your hand, put your hand on that card." He goes, "You know what I'm taking in my car? You know what I'm putting out, taking in my hand? You know what's in my hand?" And then boom, he shoots him. Yeah, uh, just goes to show you um, when you are cruising around the outskirts of LA, like looking to get deep dicked uh, by a hitchhiker, like that's when your racism comes out. I think this scene is sort of misinterpreted by a lot of people because I think that Lorenz Taint, uh, (laughs) that's how I hear it, I'm sorry. Um, I think he deserves it for two reasons. Uh, One, he has, um, uh, he's doing Catholic idolatry. (laughs) Two, um, he enjoys country music. Holy shit, if we had any trad listeners left uh, (laughs) since last week, uh, Alex just got rid of them. There was this kid who got into an accident and couldn't come to school. But when he finally came back, his hair had turned from black into bright white. He said that it was from when the cousin smashed so hard. <laughs> I want to talk about something with Lorenz Tate and uh, Ludacris' character that I really like. So, um, when they have the van that they ran over the Korean man in the beginning, like the guy the guy, the chop shop guy is like, fuck no, like this has, I watch CSI, they're gonna find all the hair and all this shit, like they're gonna send me to jail because you guys like fucking killed a guy with this van. But then when they find out that they're like fucking 500 Cambodians <laughs> in the back of the van, he's like, you know what? Uh, having a car involved in a hit and run, a little too hot for me, but uh, I will pay for these slaves. Like it's totally fine. <laughs> For you to run a human trafficking operation out of my garage. When I woke up this morning, I wasn't going to think I was going to be in the human trafficking and modern day slavery. But, you know, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. This is another. That's a very LinkedIn thing, by the way. That's like an article that he would post on LinkedIn. Like, uh, the best way to get into the human trafficking industry? By accident. Like, <laughs> this is another example of the way the movie introduces a stereotype and then subverts it. Because, like, you probably think that uh, white people uh, buy and sell human beings. But actually, it's Asians who do that now. That's true. Here's here's, Here's a scene that I wanted to talk about that I think is sort of the heart of this movie. The the kind of... That really distills the meaning of this movie or, like, what... what, The the pure ideology of this film. (laughs) And it's the scene that takes place between John Cheadle's character and William Fitchner who has a cameo as, like, an assistant DA. Now, by way of background, like, Don Cheadle and his partner are investigating a shooting where an off-duty police officer killed a black guy who was also an undercover police officer. And it looked like this is a dirty cop who just shot another black guy. But again, they're like, oh, what if we told you that the black guy was actually uh, also corrupt and had, like, 300 grand in his trunk and may have, you know... May have been a good shooting. Uh, killed Biggie also. <laughs> That's true. Um, so he has to talk to the ADA about how they're going to like spin this in a way. 
and and the scene is shot in a very interesting way where it's like they're in this big conference room and there are these huge windows behind them that's just like pure white light coming through and William Fitchner is sort of framed by this when he goes off on a monologue about basically how blah 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 all the sociological reasons blah 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 but you and I both know that black people are actually really shit. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> and he, he says this at length, and it's like, this is, I think, it's bathed in the white light of truth and reconciliation in this movie. And I don't know how else to interpret this scene, but... Well, I think the, the argument would be, and I think I've seen people make this argument, is that what he's trying to do is confront the white audience with their own prejudice and be like, this is what you really think behind closed doors, which is undermined, like I said, partially by the fact that every character is just a prick, and their huge prickness probably has more to do with anything than racism. But, uh, it's yeah, it's just like, well, yeah, these people are saying that because that's what the audience secretly believes. And then they're going to leave the, 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 the theater thinking, oh, man, I really think that? That's fucked up, yo. Maybe I should reconsider. And But the thing is, is that it may, even if that's true, uh, and like there's a lot of things that push against that like you say like the the sort of the beatific rendering of, of William Fitcher as he's laying that out and just the uh, content of like like just the characters themselves seem to confirm everything he's saying right uh, I think that even if that were somehow because one there would be have to be some sort of mechanism of triggering that like revulsion at the attitudes and there really isn't there's nothing in the film to make you go, oh, I shouldn't think that way, or oh, he's, they're talking about me and that's bad. But beyond that, it's the typical liberal attitude of racism as like a personal affliction, you know, and, and, uh, and it's just really like an attitudinal thing that's based on like, you know, your personal experience and, and, and things like that as opposed to any kind of systemic issue. Like there is no kind of... Systems don't really come into this movie at all. The moral of this movie is that if you're a deplorable racist, something will happen that will turn you into a hero. And if you're not racist, you will become racist and you will kill someone. It's <laughs> <laughs> really true. It, the, it's, 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 it's that kind of thing that, like, all the fake woke Hollywood movies that try to be challenging always end up falling into the same spot of saying, well, you know, it's, everyone's fucked up. Everybody's fucked up. Which both sides course, do it. That, that yeah. Just, yeah, both sides do it. Everyone, all these movies that try to deal with race and and that try to be anyway social commentary always end up doing that shruggy hand wave because I think a lot of people in movies think that is deep. Like if you implicate everybody, you're somehow really deep. But really all you're doing is you're not doing anything. If it's everybody, if it's everything, then it's nothing. And what was the point? Like that movie Money Monster that came out earlier this year. Didn't see it. Uh, it's it's the shitty movie about like George Clooney is like sort of Jim Cramer. And he gets held hostage by this guy who lost all his money to the dang crooked stock market. And then you find out that all oh, this company was crooked. But then at the end, the implication is, yeah, we did all this crime because everyone wanted us to, because everyone else wanted to make money, because the whole everybody is greedy. And it's like, oh shit. Like that's the kind of fake conscious shit that yeah. Hollywood movies always end up spitting out because it is affirming to the ideology of the kind of soft, comfortable assholes who make these movies because it is paralyzing. It reduces any kind of idea of activism or change because, well, everybody does it. 
Every, it's everybody's problem. It's just society, man. Oh, you hate capitalism? Why do you have an iPhone? <laughs> <laughs> because you want to be rich, too. So that means that you're just as guilty as Jamie Dimon. I mean... You know, I, I, I read or I saw Paul Haggis talk about this movie and he was like, well, I was trying to sort of channel all of my, you know, racial anxieties and fears into this movie. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he's being honest with himself, but I don't know how, you know, I don't know how successful it turned out. Well, it out. seems like, yeah, it's, cause, cause oh, like I, said, I, I feel these, I feel bad about these feelings yeah. and I'm going to make a movie that makes me feel better about having these feelings because, oh, black people are shitty. And, That's what oh. I mean. Like the racial anxiety of this movie and it's a movie, you know, for white people by white people, basically the racial anxiety, bias. <laughs> Fubu. <laughs> <laughs> the racial anxiety for, for this movie and the people who lauded it so much is that, that their racism may actually be justified in some way. You know, I have a bone to pick with the notion that white people can't make a good movie about racism because who invented racism? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. We're the experts. We need some golden era racism. And that's sort of why we're having you on, Alex. <laughs> Alex, you need to make the definitive movie about being racist to Irish people. <laughs> you need to make Irish crash. <laughs> if you made that, every shithead with... In the in the northeast corridor, with like a fucking shamrock tattoo, would make would see it fifty times like Schindler's List. <laughs> you gotta see this movie, bro. Dope, bro. You gotta see this movie. You gotta know what we've been through. I would love to make an even-handed movie about like the potato famine or something. It shows it shows the people starving, hear, and then it shows you don't hear Lord Trevelyan's point of view enough. I think. Yeah, it I'm shows trying. the Englishman. It shows the merchants and how it's like you know they need to provide for their families too. And maybe yeah. if the Irish would you know plant more crops, maybe diversify their holdings a little bit, they wouldn't fall victim to these. Maybe things. they should pull up their pants and stop uh, like killing their brain cells with ale that they uh, that they age in the bog. <laughs> pull yeah, up maybe maybe if they didn't turn all their grain into alcohol, they wouldn't have starved. I don't know. I mean, are we uh, are we missing anything else from this movie? I mean, like like I said, it's hard to talk about because nothing really happens in it. None of these characters really have an arc or like nothing is really resolved no it's arc. just like they, nothing is learned nothing is resolved nobody changes it's all for the benefit of the audience it's just expectations shifting like you said for the audience it's like you think this well haha and that's it and the characters are just pawns in this move like Matt Dillon's character after he saved Thady that's Newton's it. life goes away completely not he's not never heard from her he's seen maybe one time at the end of the movie in this awful montage but my favorite character resolution is Sandra Bullock's character. <laughs> yeah. uh, she's mean to everyone, and she falls down. She falls down the stairs and can't get up. <laughs> and the only person there for her is uh, her nanny, uh, Pilar, I'm assuming is her yeah. name. <laughs> but uh, Sandra Bullock's big catharsis is when she hugs her, her hugs, the help. hugs the help and says, You know what's funny, Pilar? You a Mexican woman of low station are actually my only real friend. So that's basically uh, driving his Daisy. Yeah. 20 years then it, later. It, then it doesn't show the next day where uh, the, the nanny spent all day caring for her and then she's like, why the fuck didn't you get the dishes done? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that said, racism is over. Racism, umpire doing the safe sign, is over after crash. <laughs> Wait, I mean, here, here's here's what I want to ask. Okay, we mentioned this movie came out in 2004. 
in my opinion, at the height of the savagery of the uh, George W. Bush administration. What do you think this movie says about uh, the early aughts in America and, and the, like what I think regard as the golden age of George W. Bush? Oh, boy. This was kind of like the uh, Casablanca of the Bush year. The Bush era for Hollywood was really this, like, it was like a, a long crack-up, uh, sort of a, a nervous breakdown among Hollywood liberals about how, what they were, how they were going to be relevant. Because, like, they were all horrified by what Bush was doing, you know, in the abstract, of course. It didn't actually affect them. But they all felt like they had to do something. But they're all constrained by both their station in life and their sort of, you know, very uh, narrow cultural window and the fact that most of them are pretty dumb and they have basically, you know, non-existent milquetoast politics. And so, but they had to do, so you had shit like Lambs for Lions, that Robert Redford movie. Oh, right. Tom where it's Cruise just like that? John Cruise, like trying to convince Meryl Streep that Iraq was a good idea. Oh, and, an the, and then and Paul Haggis, Paul Haggis after Haggis in, in the Valley in the of Valley Ella. Of Ella. Yeah. All these like anguish movies where the pull point is like, wow, you know, war. People think it's good, but actually, it's really bad, and people are hurt in it. But it's of course always through the lens of the troops, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, and that that was like if the only movies, by the way, that they made in the '90s besides Liar Liar were movies where either a white person and a black person would do some sort of Freaky Friday thing and switch places. Uh, Not that like, was glory. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> or movies where there is a bizarrely placed scene that has never happened in history where a white character will apologize to a black character just for general racism existing. And if that was the 90s, that was sort of our insanity of the 90s, then the 2000s was a lot of movies about troops who become jaded and go, why am I fighting? There is a Stop Loss with yeah. Ryan Philippe yeah. and green Channing zone. Tatum. Green zone. Green zone. Here's what's interesting to me is like I feel like there is a, a delayed fuse because after 9-11, we really didn't get the big glut of insanely jingoistic no. war propaganda because, because there was all these... Yeah, because the libs were yeah. the libs were ambiguous about it, and they didn't want to make that, so it was all sublimated and like like action movies like dealt with it, but all through a different lens. Like, say for example, uh, War of the Worlds, yeah. which is about nine eleven, but like allegorically, or like Jason Bourne was like the big action franchise, but right. he was sort of like a woke action. It was movie. A woke, yeah. exactly yeah. because there was yeah this this Hollywood uh, abhorrence at Bush. But through this really like milquetoast liberal prism, yeah, that has no real point of view. Liberals didn't come out against the war until Billy Crystal during the jazz band performance said, Mr. Bush, why don't you stop that war for one day? Come on, Bill Nolan. I would say that almost every movie that Hollywood put out that touched on American foreign policy after 9 11 can be symbolized by the form of Susan Sarandon at the 2003. Uh, Oscars, right when we were bombing Iraq at the beginning of the war, coming out to uh, announce one of the awards and doing the peace sign at hip level. I don't know if you guys remember. Yeah. Yeah. She came out and she went like, peace. And then that was it. Those were those movies. Just sort of these gentle flailings because, you know, oh, I want to say the war is bad, but I don't want them to think I don't love the troops. I'll make it about the troops. And so we fetishize the troops. Like, oh, that ends up with making fucking American sniper. You know, like, once you create these parameters, you have, you're you kind of stuck with them. The only good one, 
And people can argue with this, and I'll argue with them. The only good war movie from the uh, from the first from the Bush years that really dealt with the implications of of 9-11 and its aftermath is Syriana. Rain over me. No, <laughs> Syriana is a fucking great movie. Yes, thank you. I actually thought you were going to say a different one. Uh, the movie that really did deal with his issues, a little movie called Loose Change. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I feel, I, I do have to say, I, we, I, I, feel, I feel like I don't like his movies, but when I see him interviewed, I find myself sort of liking Paul Haggis. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Maybe it's because he was honest about being brainwashed by Scientology. Yeah, yeah I do kind of like that. I, I, yeah, but see here, I'm kind of a dick, I guess, because for me, if you were dumb enough to get brainwashed <laughs> for Scientology for 30 years, I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? It's nice that you realize that, but why the hell did it take you that long? Don't you like show up for the first day and like, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, give a fake name and they get the fuck out of there. I'm well, sorry. But, but what, no, what they do don't you, tell you the really insane shit until you're like a hundred grand. We're strapping you into a fucking e meter yeah. and we're gonna yeah, like okay. audit your emotions. Well, that's like his problem. No, it was that he hadn't seen the South Park episode. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what we love about? This is what I love about my actors and my movie people. I want them to be stupid as fuck. I love it when Jared Leto gets up there and he's like, uh, yo, everybody, let's put it together for everybody in Ukraine and Arab right now. I like, I love it when- Fernando Valenzuelans everywhere. I love it when Adrian Gurnier is like, how come we go through more straws than cancer treatments for kids in a day. Like, I love that shit. And I love that Paul Haggis was probably a Scientologist until Bill Maher was like, no role. If your religion has a copyright, it's not a religion. <laughs> That's what snapped him out of it. I got one question for you guys, though. How can mirrors be real if our eyes aren't real? <laughs> Jane, yeah, dude, Jane Smith is, I want all of them, they all are as stupid as Jaden Smith. Yes. Like, really, most actors are. Yes. It's only Jaden Smith and Mark Ruffalo and Jared Leto are brave enough to just be stupid as fuck, like, courageously stupid. Let's not forget <laughs> James Woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but he's, he's but, the flip dark yeah. side, yeah. They're all just thundering idiots with different inflections oh my God. and political Why? attitudes. Why, why Why didn't James Woods get a cameo in this movie as a racist guy? <laughs> uh, I'm going to stay here, Harvey. What? Please. Perfect. Fuck. Okay, stay here and get butt-fucked by 12 Neanderthals, bitch. It was, I, it's funny is that he was in, he was in uh, White House Down. Playing himself. Playing himself. Yeah. And like, that whole movie is like a, 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 a Unite Blue fantasy of Obama. It's, I've said before, White House Down is MSNBC, the motion it picture. It is. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's a scene at the end after they've defeated the, this like neocon insurgency to assassinate him and have him take over. Basically, Gamergate yeah. attacks the White right. House. Yeah, and, 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 and the defense industry, which is like every like lazy Hollywood liberal who doesn't really understand that. Oh, you know, the defense, the military. I saw that one like clip from Eisenhower, so I have, you know, a analysis of American political economy. He was but, one of the good ones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like they're on the helicopter and Maggie Gyllenhaal says, all of the countries are behind your peace plan, Mr. President. It's like, oh, yay. And that's, like, that's how it works. That's how it that's works. How it works. All it's the countries. The president's friend is like, yeah. everyone likes Russia, it, buddy. China, Israel, I, I, Iran. I like, they did a straw poll. Yeah. I like how at the end of the movie, uh, the Obama stand-in dyes his hair purple and pretends to make video games. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, what is James, why was James Woods, like, read that script? He had to know, he, unless he thought he was the hero, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's like James Wood is, 
he doesn't know that he's in movies anymore. And like he actually <laughs> did have a cameo. He had a cameo in Crash, and it was just like just five minutes of him saying the n-word and they're like James that was great you really went to a dark place for that and he was like when do we start filming <laughs> yeah I think that, I think the way to explain his performance in White House Down is that it was like Bowfinger where they right. filmed him without his mouth <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. and they him into the movie afterwards I think there's something we need to talk about with Crash that no one brought up it's that in the scene where the Persian guy he gets mad he thinks that the um, the Mexican lockpick locksmith guy um, gave like gave a tip to his gang to go rob his store and then he takes a gun he goes to the guy's house he almost sh- he, he tries to shoot the guy's kid and then like because um, because the racist gun shop owner gave the woman blanks to own her <laughs> he doesn't actually kill the kid and of course like no one calls the cops on him that he yeah. just he just wanted to kill a kid but it's yeah. like the, the moral of that is that the gun shop owner being racist is what kept the Muslim guy from killing a little girl. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, like that's, that's, that's the anti-racist message there. That's checks and balances. I mean, the only way to stop a racist with a gun is a racist with a gun shop. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that that fucking shop owner guy... Like, I watched the movie, obviously, you know, from the remove of irony, trying to see what was stupid about it and make fun of. But, like, when he's talking to Michael Pena and Michael Pena's trying to explain to him that he can fix the lock, but the door is broken, and if he can't, then he won't have a secure thing until someone fixes like, the door. no, my friend, you cheat me! It's yeah. like, are you, I wanted to murder him! Like, I was actually, like, actually, I was invested in the characters yeah. at that moment. I wanted to reach to the screen and kill him. <laughs> And then, yeah, he tries to ch- murder a child, and then he just walks off. Yeah, the mo- I would have loved this movie if he got hit by a fucking bus. Yeah, if, if Lud- the bus that Ludacris was on. Yeah, yes, yes. to tile it. Like that guy. The only reason he like cried after he failed to kill I the child kill the kid. is what yeah, happened? because that was like the only time like from his years of being in Savak that he failed to kill a kid. <laughs> He's like, I never miss. What the fuck? Other footnotes of the Persian shopkeeper. Uh, his wife is played by Martina Sirtris, a.k.a. Counselor Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, Am I the only guy online who doesn't know anything about Star Trek? Yes. I don't know about uh, it either. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, Sorry, I've I'm, had I'm sex. the only one. Yeah. <laughs> Me Nerd too. alert! George, don't forget about George Takei. Yeah, it's, he's... The inventor mean. of uh, Grumpy Cat and uh, the Willy Wonka meme. He, he invented the, the epic bacon liberal caucus yeah. that I'm a part of. So guys, do you think that we uh, we did it? We solved racism once again. If people uh, people have forgotten we, this we, movie, we did something with racism. Yeah, we did something, something racism related. People forgot this movie, and that's why racism is coming back. And we, by reminding them about it, are banishing it again. I didn't really see one? any sort of a message in this movie. No, like when I, just, when I when I just like watching it because people are racist in it. Yeah, and I just I think that's funny. Racism, it's really a good vicarious thrill. If you're too scared to do racism in your real life. If you're afraid of racist praxis, just watch yeah. this and sort of get the thrill that way. The first uh, two thirds of American History X, and then you turn it off. That's also a good. Yeah. <laughs> this is if I had to describe this movie, I would call it intersectional racism. <laughs> this is about the intersections and, and of racism. All racism's coming together in a beautiful rainbow coalition of races. And that's your and it's racism. called the City of Los Angeles, folks. Yeah. This movie is with the 2004 Oscars will go down as having both the worst Oscar ever awarded. 
crashed for Best Picture. Probably. But also, the best Oscar ever awarded, Three Six Mafia's Hard Out There for a Pimp, yeah. best song. Which beat out the incredibly bad song Terrible. from this movie called In the Deep or something. This, uh, this awful caterwauling. Any of you real, yeah. any of you young millennials who didn't watch this Oscars at the time because you were too busy like trying to figure out how your dick worked or something, uh, still haven't figured it out. If it's it on out. YouTube. That is the year where I figured out how to pound off. <laughs> just, just saying. 2004. Uh, you go to YouTube. I'm sure it's on there. Because that year, what they did is they had every song have an interpretive dance go along with it. And this song is so dirge-like and slow. Thought you had all the answers to rest your heart That you couldn't really dance to it. So what they had instead was they had a bunch of people in, like, gangbanger outfits. I remember this distinctly, like, Chola This is the Crash song. Yeah. 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 Doing, like, slow-motion moves with a car on fire in the distance, like with the flames made of paper and something like that. And it's one of the worst musical performances in Oscar history, and everyone should see it. Do you guys remember when 3-6 Mafia won the Academy Award for Best Song, and Jon Stewart, like, he thought it was the funniest thing ever? Yes. He was like, uh, Academy Award winners, 3-6 Mafia? Yeah, yeah, you guys noticed that they're black? <laughs> if anybody wants to go back... Uh, any like scholars of the Bush era and say how the hell did we let this happen just remind yourselves that in 2004 his re-election year the Oscars were hosted by Jon Stewart hell and yeah. Best Picture went to crash that's why we yeah. let that shit happen I, mean, I was I was also 14 when I saw Fahrenheit 9-11 with my mom I think she like let me like take off of school to watch Fahrenheit 9-11 <laughs> with her and I was walking out with her and I was like that did it like goodbye, Mr. Bush. Like, you <laughs> I had that exact same feeling. Like the, he the, can't the, come I back from a, this. I was in a, I was in a uh, a theater in like suburban Milwaukee, very full, and at the very end of it, people clapped. Like the audience actually applauded, and I'm like, that's it, showtime. She goes over, buddy. <laughs> Pack your shit, man. That that's another movie that I imagine does not hold up oh, well. No, no. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it in a while, but from what I remember, it is it does not like for just as one example that comes to mind. Uh, he wants to Michael Moore wants to uh, sort of talk about the r- restraint of civil liberties after nine eleven, and he does it by talking to some like granola dickhead. Uh, like got questioned at his gym or something because he put something online, you know, and, and that was it. As opposed to you know indefinite detention and, right. like, yeah. and stuff like that. It's like some got some dickhead with a fucking ponytail and a recumbent bike got mildly questioned by an FBI agent. I mean, that was like I still. Like, the end of that movie is when he did the best part when it was, like, the kids in Flint playing basketball with a fucking milk crate, and then they're swearing into the Marines, and it's keep on rocking in the free world. Like, that was Michael Moore doing the best, like, emotional manipulation shit he does, but everything else, it was like, uh, yeah, George Bush kept us safe in the Texas Air National Guard <laughs> while John Kerry was protecting our freedom in Vietnam. Thank you. Okay. It was a very, 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 very dumb time. Yeah, yeah. And I can't wait to have a professorship devoted to 
pushing it to. Yeah, the me. I will be. I will be. Matt. Matt is going to be the head of that the Bush Studies Department at King Fahd University in Riyadh. Oh my God, this reminds me. Actually, someone DM'd me the other day asking if we have transcripts of our show available because he wants to teach it in his college course. He wants to have us talking about movies and show his students how to like properly analyze and discuss Ooh. film. And I told him, uh, no. Sorry. Yeah, no, fuck you. Yeah. If you can't listen, like, if you have a hearing impairment, like, fuck you. This is not how we intended our art to be enjoyed. But I uh, think we covered all our bases. Uh, we, we more than covered it. That, yep. That's Crash, folks. Oh, uh, yeah. One last thing uh, from my friend. You know who you are, who had a bad day today. Everything's looking up. I hope you have a good one. Wait, hold on. One, also, one last thing. Live September 24th at Genius Headquarters. Chapo, Digcast. Tickets available. Live. Get them. Tickets available now. They're going like hotcakes, folks. Bye, bye, bye. Soon, Lynn.
Still flows with the memories of your mother's love